0: So, so for those of you who don't know, I'm Kevin. I'm the youth pastor here. I have the privilege of working with our junior high and high school students. Pastor Tim, our senior pastor, if you don't know, he is in Tokyo, Japan. He just ran the Tokyo Marathon yesterday, uh, and he finished with a time of, I believe it was like three hours, ten minutes. Yeah, I think we have one of the fastest pastors in this area. <laughs> but if you guys could... Uh... Is that kind of cool to say? Like, hey, I want to, my pastor wants to challenge your pastor to a race. Let's see who's faster, and we could probably win nine times out of ten. Um, but if I thought we what well, we could do, because I know he's watching this, I he's there with his wife Joanne and his son Andrew. If you could uh, turn and look at those two white domes, those cameras underneath the monitor, those are cameras. And we're on the count of three. We're gonna wave high and say Konichiwa. <laughs> All right, just hello in Japanese. Okay, so on the count of three. One, two, three. Konnichiwa. All right. Look, got a little umami flavor here this morning. Uh, if you, I remember back in 2020. Remember, if you remember that time, which I know a lot of us try not to but i remember when there was no sports on tv because everything was kind of shut down i remember one of my favorite things that i watched at that time we're all probably watching a little too much tv but one of my favorite things that i watched at that time was a documentary called the last dance does anyone know what the last dance is right all right awesome cool i got some people who know the last dance was a documentary, the super fun documentary, about Michael Jordan and the 90s Chicago Bulls. Now, the 90s Chicago Bulls are one of the most dominant sports teams of all time. They won six championships. They were led by Michael Jordan, you know, who people say is the GOAT. Personally, I'm more of a Kobe guy, but I get it, right? But Michael Jordan essentially had this documentary about his last season there with the Chicago Bulls, which ended in them winning the NBA championship. It was a super fun watch. Essentially, it's just eight episodes of Michael Jordan highlights and him dunking on people, hitting fadeaway jumpers on people. It's really, really fun to watch. I remember because I lived in Chicago for eight years, a lot of my friends were just posting every single week an episode aired. Like, see, Jordan's the goat. He's the greatest of all time. Michael Jordan's amazing. And you walk away from that documentary feeling, even if you're not a, the biggest Michael Jordan fan, just thinking, Yeah. I think Michael Jordan might be the GOAT. And, and your kids might have walked away from that documentary thinking like, oh, so this is the guy whose shoes I'm wearing, you know? But the thing about The, thing about the Last Dance, thank you for those of you left. <laughs> uh, the thing about that documentary, if you don't know, it was, there were multiple production teams that worked on The Last Dance. One of those production teams, was known as Jumpman 23 Productions. Now, if that's kind of cluing you in on something, it's because Jumpman 23 Productions is Michael Jordan's own production company. So Michael Jordan was effectively a producer on the Michael Jordan documentary. Adam Silver, who was the NBA commissioner, said, hey, Michael, we're going to do this documentary on this last season of your life. You have final say on everything that goes in. So how you want to be portrayed, how you want them to show you, uh, how, the, how they're basically conveying the message of your last season, you have final say. If you don't like anything, we'll take it out. Am I, so when you're watching the Michael Jordan documentary produced by J- Michael Jordan, are you going to have a positive or negative view on Michael Jordan? Probably pretty positive. You're not going to walk away from the Michael Jordan documentary produced by Michael Jordan walking away thinking LeBron James is the best player of all time. Right. And his teammates were aware of this, and they picked up on this. And some of his teammates, like, for those of you 90s basketball fans, like Scottie Pippen, Horace Grant, uh, Luke Longley, for any diehard Luke Longley fans out there, they walked away... (laughs) Mike Burke's clapping. (laughs) Uh, they walked away thinking, "Hey man, you kind of made you made yourself look really good in this documentary, but you made us look kind of horrible. <laughs> you made us the scapegoat for some of your losses, for some of your failures on the bulls. Like, what's going on here?" So, some of his teammates currently, right now, what they're doing is they're on a speaking tour, sharing their side of the story of what happened in the 1997-1998 NBA season. I think everything in our world today, much like how when, in this documentary where Michael Jordan is presenting his best self to the world, right, everything in our world conditions us to reflect ourselves. Everything in our world today conditions us to reflect ourselves. Social media, your streaming services like Netflix, music streaming services like Spotify, All the time, when you listen to something or watch something, what those streaming services then do is they take that data of what you're watching and what you're listening to, and they suggest more and more content like it. And what's really interesting is when somebody watches something on your streaming service, so for those college students who are on their parents' Netflix account... And then when they then get suggested content that is not necessarily targeted for them, they're thinking, oh, this is reflecting something that my kid then likes. Spotify even does this really cool thing called the Spotify Wrapped, where at the end of the year, it takes all of the data of all of the music that you've listened to and shares it with you, right? Everything in our world is reflecting us today. And I think that's a really, really interesting thing because for us as Christians, we are not called to reflect ourselves. We, who are image bearers, we believe that everyone is an image bearer, Christian and non-Christians alike, we believe that humanity is not called to reflect ourselves, but to reflect the God who created us. And yet sometimes I think we find ourselves in this tension of wanting to reflect ourselves and our initial, original calling of reflecting God, and it seeps into us in various ways that we're not always really conscious of or realizing. One example for me is when I remember when I became a first became a Christian. It was at a uh, youth retreat. I was in about sixth, seventh grade at the time. And I remember, you know, just the worship being really, really awesome, being able to spend time with other Christians, being incredible, uh, hearing really impactful messages, being kind of sleep-deprived. It was a really great weekend. <laughs> um, and I remember, though, being feeling so on fire, feeling so just like passionate about God and who he is and what he's done. And I remember, after coming down the mountain, after the euphoria of becoming a Christian had kind of worn off, feeling like I was getting further and further and further and further away from God. Because real life comes in. When you're at a retreat or you're at a camp, that's not really real life. It's great. It's awesome to hear messages and great worship, but it's not really real life. And so me... As a young junior high student, what I tried to do is I tried to sort of manufacture the feelings that I felt when I was up at the retreat worshiping God. I would listen to the songs from the set list I would try to read my Bible I would try to pray, but i wasn 't experiencing that same feeling that I had on the mountain and sooner and soon enough, my worship became centralized around me trying to manufacture this feeling than it was about reflecting God and who he is. True worship, authentic true worship, is a key theme throughout scripture, throughout the Bible. And it's here in our passage in John chapter 4 as we resume our series in John today. True worship is an incredibly important theme. And I, I think true worship looks like this. True worship is for God's people to enter into God's presence and acknowledge him for who he is. True worship is for God's people to enter into God's presence and acknowledge him for who he is. So we're picking up in our John series in John chapter 4. You now We took a break for Missions Month, and so just to kind of reestablish some background here and catch us up in John chapter 4, throughout our series, Pastor Tim has continually reminded us of this idea that we might believe. The main one of the main ideas in John is that we might believe that Jesus is the son of God. We opened with John's prologue in John 1 which outlines how the gospel is about Jesus's self-disclosure of himself his self-revelation to the world that he is the son of god he is the messiah he is the logos god made flesh and throughout this narrative so far Jesus has had various encounters with people as the fully incarnate God-man, especially with Jewish leadership and tradition at times. He has an aggressive confrontation with the Jewish leadership when he cleanses the temple. That's when he's turning over tables and the money changers saying, you've turned my father's house, uh, you know, to the house of prayer into like a house of sales. He has a dialogue with Nicodemus, who is a Jewish Pharisee and teacher, where they talk about the idea of being born again, eternal life. And now, in John chapter 4, he travels to a region known as Samaria. Now, what's important about Samaria is that it is home of the Samaritans, who are the ethnic enemies of Israel at this time some background in history, the kingdom of Israel that had been united under King David as one sort of kingdom had fractured after his son, the death of his son Solomon. So in the southern kingdom, you had Judah, which was David's tribe. And the northern kingdom, you had the rest of the tribes of Israel. And the northern... And the Samaritans were descendants of these northern tribes who had also been conquered by the Assyrians and intermarried with the colonizers. So they were ethnically mixed. They were not full ethnic Israelites like the southern kingdom people in Judah were. And so this comes up in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. It comes up in Second Temple literature. Second Temple literature is that period of time between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the Gospels. So books, uh, the, so, sec, so apocryphal books like Maccabees that deal with the Hasmonean period, right? Uh, and so this is kind of all throughout Israel's background and history. So as soon as someone in the ancient world would read Jesus is traveling through Samaria, they would think, why is a Jewish teacher or rabbi traveling through Samaria? They are the ethnic and religious enemy of the Israelites. And there was, by the way, there was religious tension and animosity too. Because one of the things that the Samaritans believed is that they believed that it was not the temple in the capital city, Jerusalem, where God's presence dwelled. They believed that was in a place called Mount Gerizim. And not only that, they actually had uh, a different Old Testament. See, the Samaritans believed that only the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, so that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that that was the extent of the Old Testament canon. Whereas the the Southern Jewish people, they believed that the whole of the Old Testament was God's revelation. So essentially, the disagreement in religion boils down to this. Where is God revealing himself? Is it in Mount Gerizim, or is it in Jerusalem? And how is God revealing himself? Is it through the first five books, or is it through the entire Old Testament canon. So that's kind of the context and scene that we're setting here today. So Jesus is traveling into, Sam- into Samaria. He goes to a well to stop because he's tired, and he meets a woman there. So we pick up in John chapter 4, verse 7. John chapter 4, verse 7 says this. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food, I need some of that water that doesn't make you thirsty, I think, right now. Jesus asks the Samaritan woman for a drink, and this shocks her. She asks him, why are you asking me for a drink? And we might not find that weird at all, some of us who are very extroverted, or no extroverted people <laughs> we might see someone we might talk to someone in line at Starbucks or at a coffee shop chatting them up asking someone while you're getting a drink somewhere is not that weird in our modern context but in the ancient world culturally this was quite scandalous actually Right, Uh, we talked about the numerous cultural and and ethnic barriers here between Jews and Samaritans, but there is also gender gaps as well. Jesus is speaking to this Samaritan woman, and he's speaking to her with dignity and with respect. But in this ancient context, men did not really interact with women who were outside of their own family, and some, some not all, but some very extreme, extremely conservative. Jewish theologians believe that if a rabbi, if a Jewish teacher, a rabbi, spoke to a woman, and even if that woman was his own wife, that that was a distraction from studying the Torah. And they even believed, right, once again, this is some, not all, believed that to teach the Torah to a woman was as inappropriate as a woman acting lewdly or licentiously, But one of the interesting things about Jesus is that he's not held by these ancient sex, this sort of like ancient sexism about women. He's not held bound by these xenophobic ideas about the Samaritan. He engages with her, he talks to her, he affirms her dignity and talks to her, just as he did with the Jewish teacher Nicodemus, just as he dialogued with the Jewish leaders in the temple when he cleansed the temple that Jesus is a God not just for one specific ethnic group, for one specific people, for one specific gender. Jesus is a God for all people. And his engagement with the Samaritan woman is showing that Jesus is someone who is for all people. So we pick up then in verse uh, 16. The woman is uh, she hears about Jesus offering this living water that gives eternal life, and she thinks, "Like this sounds pretty good. I can have water that I'll never be thirsty again. I don't have to come to this well and lug water. This is incredible." She says, "Can I have some of this water?" And Jesus says, "Go call your husband and come back." And she replies, "I have no husband." Jesus says to her, "You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man now, and the man you now have, is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true." Sir, the woman said, "I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that, Jews claim that the place where you must worship is in Jerusalem." picking up 21, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, there's a time coming when you will worship the father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And we'll pause right there really quick. So this woman is very perceptive. She uh, sees that Jesus is offering something, sees that there's something different about Jesus. And then Jesus begins to actually kind of give her details about her life they've never met before. They've never spoken before. They've never had any sort of interaction before. And Jesus shares details about her life that he would not know unless he was God or someone, at least from her perspective, someone special or unique. He talks about how he's, she's had five husbands. Now, we're not sure if these are a result of like divorce or adultery. We might. Some of these might be a result of possibly even uh, that she's a widow. We're not really sure overall, but we do know this, that in the ancient world, especially at this time, for a woman to have had five husbands was not really a good thing. And so at the very least, what we can say is that her reputation within this community would have been in low standing. So this Samaritan woman Samaritans who are already misfits, women who are already misfits in this ancient patriarchal context, she is in a way a misfit amongst misfits. She is an outsider amongst outsiders. And we see Jesus dialoguing and engaging, not, not necessarily shaming or ridiculing or belittling her, but just simply reading her life back to her. It's kind of, I remember I took a counseling course in undergrad and the professor was doing a uh, lecture on body language and he used me as an example about body language and which if your professor ever asked to do that just say no but he said Kevin he said I see that you're so I, he brought me up to the stage. and said, Kevin, so I see that your arms are crossed right now. I see that you're kind of standing far away from me right now as well, and you're standing far away from this. I can tell that right now you're being very defensive about me reading your body language in front of the class. And he was right. <laughs> I was feeling very awkward about being my body language. But this is something entirely different, actually, where Jesus actually being God made flesh knows her story and reads it back to her. And as she does it, as Jesus does this, she replies. She understands that there must be something different about this man that I'm talking to. There must be something. So she asks, you know, I can see that you're a prophet in verse 19, and she asks him a theological question about worship. And it's interesting to notice that this woman understands that there's something unique about Jesus if you recall the prologue in John chapter 1, it's about Jesus self-disclosing, self-revealing himself to the world. And in John chapter 1, verse 11, actually, it even says this in John chapter 1, verse 11, that Jesus, as he reveals himself, that he came to his own, that which was his own, his own people, but his own did not receive him. This is referring to the Jewish people that Jesus has come to, the people who had the Old Testament, who knew the Old Testament, who knew about the Messiah who was to come, not perceiving. And we see that happen throughout these beginning stages here in John. We see it happen at the temple cleansing. We see it happen with Nicodemus who is confused as he and Jesus dialogue about eternal life and how one must be born by water and spirit, right? We then see it even with the disciples of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the forerunner who prepares the way for Jesus. And his disciples become kind of jealous and frustrated when Jesus' own disciples and Jesus, his ministry seems to grow at the expense of John the Baptist. So we see that these people who are supposed to know, who should have better knowledge of Jesus and who he is, seem to be falling short in their understanding of who Jesus is. And yet, the Samaritan woman, who's been married five times, who is an outsider amongst outsiders, a misfit amongst misfits, sees and understands that there is something unique about this Jesus. And so she asks him a question. She asked him a question about worship. We talked about how Samaritans and Jewish people believed or had different thoughts on where the proper place for worship was. Was it Mount Gerizim in Samaria or was it at the temple in Jerusalem? And Jesus responds in a really interesting way Picking up in 21, he says, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you'll worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit. And his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. This Samaritan woman, this lowly woman, sees and understands and Jesus for who he is. It's interesting when she asks when she then follows up and asks him a question about the nature and proper location for worship he responds that it's not bound by a, worship is not bound by a single physical location true worship is defined by worshiping in spirit and in truth now the woman's question might seem funny to our modern ears because you know we're we are the post covid church where uh, some of us were in our pajamas eating cereal, watching church online, um, which, by the way, I, I'm not going to lie, I enjoyed having cereal while watching church. It, was, it wasn't bad, right? But so we've kind of lost sense, maybe, for how important physical geographic location is for worship. But for this context, for this world, it was incredibly important. You think about the Babylonian exile of the Jewish people. The Jewish people were called to be God's people and dwell in the land that God had given them. And when they were exiled, pulled out of that land, and placed then in Babylon, they lost one of their primary parts of their identity, which was the land. And they were then in exile wrestling are we still God's people if we're no longer dwelling to the place that He called us to dwell in? This is, this is kind of the context of the New Testament as well, where the Jewish people are back in the land, but it's not a Jewish king ruling over them. It's Roman occupation that rules over them. Physical location was incredibly meaningful in the ancient world. And so Jesus then responds That true worshipers, then, he says, it's not based on Mount Gerizim. It's not based on Jerusalem. It's based on this. It's based on spirit and in truth. Well, what do we mean by spirit and truth? Well, first, let's look at the term spirit. With spirit, we're not talking about like Star Wars, where, you know, the characters in Star Wars, when they die, they turn into like a blue force ghost that's transparent. That's not what we mean by spirit. What we mean by spirit what we mean by spirit is that it is like and in, in the manner of God. That just as God is a God who restores, is creative, is life-giving, just as God is light and he is love, God is spirit. And his worshipers model that by also worshiping in spirit. What Jesus is saying is that true worshipers worship in spirit, meaning true worshipers worship like me. That their worship reflects me. That their worship is about God and who he is, not necessarily our own personal geographic preferences for where we worship, but it is about understanding who Jesus is. Then by truth, we mean kind of going back to the prologue, the truth of who God is. Jesus is one who has self-disclosed and revealed himself. So understanding the truth and knowledge of who that God is. It's not based on just a physical location. It's not just based on our favorite ethnic tribe or group. It is based on who Jesus is. This is what John is talking about when he talks about the word becoming flesh and making his dwelling among us in John 1 14. You know, you know it, it appeared during the video feed as well. You know, when it talks about uh, John, uh, the word becoming flesh and making his dwelling, that that's actually another way to read that. If we read that literally, it would say the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The tabernacle was kind of the precursor to the temple when Israel was wandering in the wilderness before they entered into the promised land. It was the temple before the temple, essentially. So Jesus is saying that the temple has been made flesh in himself. True worship has been made flesh in himself. and And the story then ends in the book of Revelation, which is also written... By the, by the apostle John. It then ends with this, when the new heaven and new earth come together in the space where God dwells, in the space where humanity dwells, that that is no longer a barrier. We're just fully reconciled back to God. Revelation twenty one twenty two says this, that the Lord... Uh, 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 so picking up with Revelation 21, verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Worship, true, authentic worship, is not just what I'm feeling at a given time. True, authentic worship is not just my favorite genre of music. True, authentic worship asks the question, how am I reflecting Jesus? That is the nature of true and authentic worship. We talked about how the main theme of, we've been talking about throughout the series, the main theme of John is that we may believe Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, there's a theologian named D.A. Carson. He teaches at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, which is the e- our denomination seminary, actually the EFCA seminary, and also where I went to seminary. Uh, that's right. Not all of us are Talbot and Biola guys. the no way. Uh, but, uh, but Dr. Carson says this, that when we look at the idea of belief, we need to look at it in a two-fold sense. Object, object and manner. Object and manner. Jesus is the object of our belief. He is the one whom we believe and place our trust in. And yet, he is also the model for what belief looks like true worship and belief and trust in God looks like Jesus. So when Jesus is going to his people's ethnic and religious enemy and dialoguing with her and dwelling with her and sharing his presence with her, that is the model of belief and worship that we are called to mimic. There's you know, there's a series I watch on YouTube. It's from an apologetics group called The Jude 3 Project. It was started by a woman named Lisa Fields. Really, really smart woman. Much smarter than me. And she hosts a, a roundtable discussion of called... She hosts this roundtable discussion called Why I Don't Go to Church Anymore. And she'll have basically people who used to go to church... They used to identify as Christians, but they don't do that any longer. And she just, she asks them the question very simply, so why don't you go to church anymore? A lot of these people used to work at churches. A lot of them grew up in churches. A lot of them were serving in churches in various capacities. And what's interesting is that it's not the beliefs and doctrine and theology of Christianity that caused them to walk away from the church. It's not. They, they, they'll even say in these discussions, like, you know, I still believe God is good. I still believe in Jesus. But a lot of times what they'll say is the reason that they leave the church is because they don't see Christians acting like Christians. The biggest detriment to their faith, and I'm not trying to say that about anyone here, by the way. I, I think all of us fall short when it comes to living like Jesus. But it's also interesting to note that all these people who left the church, that the biggest, most damaging thing that could have happened to their faith was seeing other Christians who didn't act like Jesus. Jesus is the object of our faith, but he is also the manner, he is also the model for how we are called to worship him throughout this series in John, Pastor Tim has talked about the differences between John and the synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And one of those key differences is that there are no parables in the book of John, but there is continuity between stories in John and the parables that we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And when we're talking, as we're reading about Samarit- the, Jesus and the Samaritan woman here, I think it's interesting to note uh, Luke's parable of the Good Samaritan. We won't go super deep in depth in with it, but just know this: when we read, I know that my tendency when I read the story of the Good Samaritan, if you don't know it, the Good Samaritan is about a Jewish man who is beaten, robbed, and left for dead on the side of the road. And eventually a Samaritan man so the ethnic and religious enemy of the Jewish people takes him to an inn, nurses him back to health, pays for his lodging, and just acts kindly to this person. Now, when, when I've read this story, and I think non-Christians do, because like, even non-Christians know this story of the Good Samaritan. There's like Good Samaritan laws that you can go and help somebody, and you're not going to like, be at risk of getting sued, essentially, for being a good, kind person, Right? But I know my tendency when I read this is I need to be like the Samaritan. And and we should mimic and emulate the kindness of the Samaritan. That's not a bad thing. But it's not the main point of the passage. When we look at the context of the Good Samaritan passage, Jesus is dialoguing with a Jewish teacher. And the Jewish teacher is trying to trap Jesus. And so he asks him, What are the two greatest laws? Jesus responds, love God and love your neighbor. And then it says in Luke that the teacher wants to justify himself. And so he asks asks a follow-up question: Well, who is my neighbor? The question of the parable of the Good Samaritan is not, How can I be a good Samaritan? The question that the Good Samaritan wants us to ask is: who is my neighbor? Oftentimes, we define neighbor as the people who are most like us. You know, we think about, like, uh, for those of you who watched Home Improvement, we think of, like, Wilson from Home Improvement, where you never saw his face, but then you just know that Tim Allen was talking to him. Some of you guys didn't watch Home Improvement. That's okay. (laughs) Um, But we define neighbor as someone who is in close geographic proximity to us. Uh, We live on the same street. Kids attend the same schools, we eat at the same restaurants, Uh, we have the same extracurriculars, right? I even heard some teachers talk about this passage as your neighbor is essentially other Christians, and so you're only called to love other Christians. But looking at the Good Samaritan passage, looking at how Jesus is interacting with the Samaritan woman, looking at The cultural and ethnic tension and background between Jews and Samaritans, I don't know if we're supposed to just draw lines on who we define as our neighbor and not. I think we're actually supposed to ask ourselves, who are the Samaritans around me? Who are the people that God is calling me to love? Who are the misfits of the misfits, the outcasts of the outcasts that God loves? Because I was a misfit of misfits in God's family, and yet he loved me first and brought me back into a relationship with himself. There's, um, there's an ML, old MLK quote where he talks about how the, the most segregated hour in America is 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning. That's a spicy quote. <laughs> Uh, and there's actually, unfortunately, some data that actually reflects that. Not talking about ethnic division, but speaking of like socioeconomic, do you know what the least socioeconomic diverse place is? It's not churches, it's public schools. Churches are second least. But the most, diverse socioecon- uh, the most socioeconomically diverse location is chain restaurants. So like your chilies, your Outback Steakhouses, right? And by the way, I know sharing a bloomin' onion with someone is a lot easier than worshiping and doing church with them, right? Food is the lowest common denominator when it comes to things we can agree on. But I think that should maybe get us thinking. It is difficult to love somebody different than us. It is difficult to love people that we disagree with. It is difficult to love the Samaritans and the misfits. And that is why we, ha- when we worship, we don't worship according to preference or accolades or our skills. We worship in the spirit and truth of who Jesus is. That we rely on him to worship truly. We jump down to... Jesus' and his disciples, they, they see Jesus interact with this Samaritan woman, and she is just blown away. She confesses that he's the Messiah, and then she shares this with the rest of the Samaritans in the village. Uh, and we pick up then in verse 39, after she tells the rest of the Samaritans in the village, this really cool ha- thing happens in John 14, 30, or John 4, 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. So he said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Jesus spent two extra days in samaria with the samaritans a jewish teacher jewish rabbi spent extra days with the people who recognized him which were his ethnic and re- traditionally ethnic and religious enemies and he was there true worship calls us to be not in our own personal preferences and boxes but to be where jesus is where jesus is is with our neighbors.